Well, in God's providence, it turns out that we are having quite the politically incorrect month here at TPC, uh, the so-called Pride Month. Pastor Rich preached uh, last week on pride going before a fall from Romans 1, the connection between idolatry and the various evils that we see promoted in the LGBTQ plus movement. And this morning, we'll be looking at Peter's instruction to Christian wives to submit to their husbands. Not exactly a popular topic in the culture. Uh, We're not doing this uh, to be edgy. We're not trying to be edgy here at TPC, but we do this because we are concerned to teach God's Word, to teach the Bible. Uh, When the culture abandons God's word, the contrast starts to become sharper, and the church's ways start to look strange in comparison to the world. When you hear the phrase, wives, submit to your husbands, or wives, obey your husbands, do you experience a positive or a negative reaction? Wives, does that instruction from Peter invoke a sense of fear or a sense of beauty? Our reaction to these sections of the Bible may be a good litmus test for whether or not the culture is shaping our views on marriage and sexuality. Our culture is constantly promoting the idea that authority is inherently evil, that most women throughout history have been unjustly oppressed and abused by men, and that the church has been complicit in perpetuating these injustices. Now, I'm not, of course, denying that abuse exists in a fallen world. It does. What I am denying is that the Bible's definition of marriage and authority is inherently abusive or unjust. It's not. We must not be embarrassed by the Word of God. In our gospel lesson, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. We must fear the Lord more than we fear what the culture thinks about us. We need to trust God's life-giving ways over our own attempts to define human flourishing apart from God's Word. And if you think that the culture is not influencing the church in this area, just look at the rise of women pastors over the last 50 years. Uh, Even the Southern Baptist Convention, a bastion of Uh, conservatism over the last couple of decades, just this past week, were meeting and one of the issues they were hashing out was basic categories about pastors and elders and whether women can fulfill these offices. Uh, Because they had a rise in churches uh, with women occupying the office of pastor or elder. All these things are related. No doubt the Feminist worldviews of the sexual revolution that began in the 60s and 70s were largely the first major steps in our society toward rejecting the Bible's teaching on these issues. Feminism is an attempt to undermine God's design for marriage and the household. God made man male and female in his image. Each reflect God's glory in a unique and distinct way in a different way. Man and woman 
are equal in worth and dignity, both made in the image of God, both co-heirs of the grace of life, as we heard from Peter this morning, but each are designed to fulfill their callings in accordance with their particular glory. Feminism seeks to minimize and relativize all differences between male and female, to remove any kind of God-ordained hierarchy in the family. Feminism in many ways paved the way for the LGBTQ plus movement by relativizing these differences. It denigrates the glory of a wife submitting to her husband and fulfilling her role as a keeper of the home, her calling to love her husband and her children. It presents men as oppressive by virtue of their call to lead their households as the head of the wife. Ultimately, feminism seeks to undermine the glorious and profound mystery of the gospel to which marriage refers, the relationship between Christ and the church. Nothing less than speaking truthfully about the gospel is at stake here. But even long before the 60s and 70s, seeds were being sown to call into question God's word on these matters. Listen to this dialogue from Laura Ingalls Wilder in her book, These Happy Golden Years, published in 1943. Laura's recounting her hesitation to use the traditional marriage vows in her upcoming wedding to her husband, Almanza. Her book says this, Then she, Laura, summoned all her courage and said, Almanzo, I must ask you something. Do you want me to promise to obey you? Soberly, he answered, of course not. I know it is in the wedding ceremony, but it is only something that women say. I never knew one that did it, nor any decent man that wanted her to. Well, I'm not going to say I will obey you, said Laura. I cannot make a promise that I will not keep. And Almanzo, even if I tried, I do not think I could obey anybody against my better judgment. I'd never expect you to, he told her. And there will be no difficulty about the ceremony, because Reverend Brown does not believe in using the word obey. Even as early as 1885, when their marriage took place, there were ministers who were uncomfortable with the language of the Bible as it pertains to marriage. Wives. Do you, like Laura, refuse to think this way about your calling as a wife? Husbands, do you, like Almanzo, think that a decent man should not expect submission from his wife? Have we become like Reverend Brown, who does not believe in using such words? As we've been working our way through uh, the letter of 1 Peter, we've come to the portion of his letter that deals with the specifics of how the church is to conduct herself among the Gentiles, that is the pagan, pagan, unbelieving world. As the redeemed people of God who have been born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Peter says you're to walk in fear of God, that you're to fear God above all else, and you're to have an honorable way of life, an honorable conduct, so that the Gentiles may see your good deeds and glorify God. And as Peter's begun to outline particular duties and obligations, we've seen that submission is a recurring theme that runs through his instructions. All Christians are to fear God above all else and submit to the Lord. All Christians submit to King Jesus. 
All Christians, men and women, we submit. In chapter 2, verse 13, Peter instructs all Christians again to submit to the governing authorities, to magistrates, from the emperor to the lowest governor, even to pagan rulers, since God has established civil rulers to punish evil and to praise good. Believers are to fear God above all, but they're also to honor the emperor. And then next, Peter focuses on slaves or household servants submitting to their masters, even to the unjust ones, knowing that God sees their suffering. And now, Peter turns his attention to wives and husbands. This morning, we'll look at the instruction that he gives to wives in particular, and next week, we'll focus on the instruction to husbands. Peter shows us that the submission of a Christian wife to her husband is rooted in a fearless hope in God. It's displayed in respectful and pure conduct, and it's cultivated by a gentle and quiet spirit. I'll say that again. That's the outline of my sermon. The submission of a Christian wife to her husband is, number one, rooted in a fearless hope in God. Number two, displayed in respectful and pure conduct. And number three, it's cultivated by a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter says, likewise, wives, submit or be subject to your own husbands. Again, submission here is a subspecies of the larger call to submission for all Christians. All of us submit in all things to our Lord. All of us submit in the civil realm to rulers. And wives are to submit to their own husbands. Peter's not saying all women should submit to all men. No, wives should submit to their own husbands, not to every husband. God has given the office of leading and ruling the household to the husband. And he's given the wife the office of following and supporting the husband in their mission together. Peter's not merely accommodating the cultural norms of his day. Some scholars say he's just uh, cozying up to the cultural norms of the day. He doesn't really believe this. Um, He's not merely promoting submission as an evangelism strategy to win unbelieving husbands, although that's uh, an aspect of this we'll see in a moment. Peter appeals to Abraham's wife, Sarah as an example of a godly wife. Outside of their context, outside of their time, he appeals to Sarah, a saint of old. She's one of the holy women of old, fulfilling her God-ordained calling in marriage by submitting to and obeying her husband, Abraham. Christian wives are called to be children of Sarah, imitating her example. Just as Titus 2, we heard, instructs older women to teach the younger women about submitting to their husbands and loving their family. So Peter tells them to read about older women like Sarah and learn from these holy women of old. We're told that Sarah hoped in God and obeyed her husband. Her submission to her husband was rooted in her hope in the Lord. She was fearless, as Peter puts it, did not fear anything that is frightening because she hoped in the Lord. She had a fearlessness because of her hope in the Lord. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age 
since she considered him faithful who had promised. She trusted in God's promises by faith. Her submission was rooted in a fearless hope in God. In submitting to her husband, Sarah was walking in the pattern that the Lord established with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 2, the Lord forms Adam from the dust of the ground and places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord declares, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable or fit for him. So the Lord puts Adam into a death-like sleep and he takes a rib from his side and he builds a glorious woman. He builds a woman from the man and he brings her to the man and the two become one flesh. And this is where we see the first words of poetry ever uttered by Adam when he sees what God has brought to him. Eve is given to him as a helper suited for Adam. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He's not able to fulfill his mission to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth without her. He needs her. Adam is a king over creation, but he needs a queen to fulfill his royal task. The woman is given to him to help him and to support him and to follow his lead. She has unique gifts that he needs so that they can complete God's mission for them together. Adam and Eve together constitute the image of God. Genesis 1 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Together, they make up the image of God. They're both equal in dignity and worth. And within the marriage, they uh, have assigned duties and roles to fulfill that are distinct. Because Adam was created first and the woman was formed from the man, he is given the authority as the head of the woman. He's to rule his household, to love and cherish his bride. Uh, he, uh, her, her life work is to be his mission. That is what submission means, to come under sub his mission. She is to submit and show respect to her husband and his leadership. And this reality of submission and headship is rooted in the creation and the institution of marriage by God. So Peter's not appealing to cultural norms of the day. Uh, it's rooted in Sarah. It's rooted further in creation. Paul also tells us in Ephesians 5, speaking just to Christians, uh, that marriage, the one flesh union of a man and woman, is a picture of Christ and the church. As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of his wife. And as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So all of these realities form Peter's instruction to wives to submit to their own husbands. Like the section on slaves and masters, Peter gives us a kind of worst case scenario. Remember with the slaves, he says, even to the unjust master, even if your master is mistreating you, submit to him. Here in the, the submission section to wives, he gives a kind of worst case scenario as well. A Christian wife who has an unbelieving husband. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay, that phrase, do not obey the word. 
um, is most likely a reference to rejecting the gospel. Here's why. Chapter 1, Peter talks about the living and abiding word of God, which he says is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, the word is the good news in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he says that those who do not believe are the same who stumble because they disobey the word. They're disobeying the word and not believing are paralleled there. In chapter 4, he speaks of those who do not obey the gospel. Okay, I think all of these make it clear that do not obey the word is a reference to the gospel. Um, husbands who are not believers. This makes for an especially difficult uh, circumstance, of course, for a wife in the first century who's converted to Christianity. Wives would have been expected to adopt the religion of their husbands. Plutarch, a uh, Greek philosopher and Roman citizen living at the time that Peter's letter was written, says this. He says, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. Okay, no doubt Plutarch and many other Romans would have considered Christianity one of those strange superstitions of the time. So a wife who converts to Christianity without her husband is pursuing something uh, very socially radical. Peter's advice is not for her to just go along with her unbelieving husband. Okay, Peter's calling Christian wives to be submissive, to be respectful, to be above reproach in every other possible area so that their husbands can be won over to the gospel. Okay, I think this gives us some insight here on the nature of submission. Uh, this means that submission to the husband for a Christian wife is not limitless. It just as submission to governing authorities is not limitless, the Christian wife's ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. She submits to her husband as unto the Lord. That is, she freely submits herself to her husband's leadership and authority because Jesus tells her so. If her husband asks her to disobey Christ, she must respectfully decline. She must obey God rather than men. If he asks her to sin or to hurt herself or her children or to go against God's word in any way, she must not submit. So the Christian wife's submission is unto the Lord and it's not limitless. Notice also that she has her own opinions on important matters that are different than her husband's. Okay, she has a mind and a will of her own. Peter's understanding of submission does not mean that wives should not learn or think for themselves. While women are not to be pastors in the church, Paul makes that very clear. Paul does encourage women to be educated and to think. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, if there is anything that a woman desires to learn, let them ask their husband at home. And 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Okay, being submissive to your husband does not mean neglecting education or forming opinions of your own about important matters. A husband who uh, desires for his children to be wise and well-educated should understand the importance of their mother being well-educated. 
After all, she is likely the one who's doing the bulk of the training of the children. Peter says the way in which she is to win her husband over is without a word by her conduct. What should we make of this? The word is, of course, necessary for conversion. Peter already explained in chapter 1 that these Christians were born again through the living and abiding word of God. Romans 10 also says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Peter's not saying that unbelieving husbands will be won over uh, without the word by the godly conduct alone. He says that these husbands do not obey the word. He may have in mind that they've heard the word and rejected it, okay, and they don't want to hear any more from their wives, and so she's going to show by her godly lifestyle how that word transforms her. It's also possible that Peter sees the wife's conduct as a kind of preparation for proclamation of the word to her husband. Either way, Peter sees the godly wife's submission to her husband as a kind of evangelism, a submission of a Christian wife to her husband as a kind of evangelism. Remember, marriage is a proclamation of the gospel. It speaks about Christ and the church. When the wife is walking in the calling the Lord has given her, this is a powerful testimony to the wisdom of God. While the word of God is necessary for true conversion, the godly lifestyle of a Christian can win someone over to the truth. The transforming power of Christ in your life is a testimony to God's love. St. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, he recounts his mother, Monica's faithful witness to, to his pagan father. That his mom was a Christian, his dad was a pagan. He says this in the Confessions, which is a, a long prayer to God. So when he says you, he's speaking to God here. He says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Augustine's father was converted on his deathbed, and Augustine here attributes that conversion to the years of godly conduct that his mother displayed to her husband. That faithful life won him over. Now, while this text is dealing specifically with an unbelieving husband. I do think we can draw application here to wives of believing husbands who are not fulfilling their calling of leading their homes well. In this situation uh, of a husband who's a Christian, but he's, he's not um, fulfilling his leadership role well, godly wives should resist the temptation to just simply take over the husband's role. Okay, that's the temptation. He's not doing it. I'll just take care of it. Maybe you're afraid that if you don't step in and take over, things will fall apart. Things will not get done if I don't do it. Peter says that Sarah's submission to Abraham was rooted in a fearless hope in God. That she wasn't afraid of anything because she trusted in God. She trusted that God was sovereign, that God loved her, that he was in control, that he was her good father. Peter says to do good, if you're children of Sarah, do good and do not be afraid of anything that is frightening. Resist the temptation to take the reins. Let your husband lead. Sometimes this means allowing things to fall apart a little bit. Give him some room to step in and take charge. But seek to win your husband over 
with your godly conduct. Trust the Lord to bless your faithfulness. Now, of course, godly husbands should consult their wives. Wives are to be our lady wisdom. Uh, This means that our wives are called to help uh, their husbands by respectfully admonishing them when they need it. Wives should respectfully point out to their husbands areas where their husbands are not in line with the word. The submission of a Christian wife is rooted in a fearless hope in God. Secondly, a Christian wife's submission is displayed in respectful and pure conduct. Peter says that the Christian wife's conduct should be respectful and pure. And the example he gives is of Sarah obeying her husband and calling him Lord. This, of course, is not Lord with a capital L, but Lord as in her master. Uh, The only example we have of Sarah calling Abraham Lord is from Genesis 18, where Sarah's kind of laughing to herself about the announcement of them having a baby in old age. She says, when my Lord is old and I am worn out, shall we have this delight? It's almost like this passing comment that she makes to herself where she refers to him as my Lord. Peter's point is that this kind of respect for her husband was characteristic of her life. Sarah was not perfect, but she did exemplify respectful speech and behavior toward her husband Abraham. Now wives, you may be asking yourselves, does this passage mean I need to call my husband my Lord? I don't think so, but it does mean that a Christian wife should seek to show her husband respect in how she speaks to him, how she speaks about him to others, and she should honor the office that God has given him. Notice that this passage and the other similar passages in the Bible that call wives to respect their husband, they don't qualify if he's respectful. Respect him if he's a respectable man. A godly wife does not submit to her husband only if she agrees with him. Or whenever he, you know, if he, if he would never make any mistakes, then I would respect him and submit to him. No, her ultimate allegiance is to Christ, but unless... Um, he is asking her to disobey Christ, she should seek to respect and obey him in all things, Paul says, and obey him in all things. A godly wife should not ridicule her husband to others, speaking of his shortcomings or complaining about him. If you're having trouble respecting your husbands, look for areas in his life where you can respect him. They make a list, if you have to, of the accomplishments that he's made and start there. Ask the Lord to show you areas where you can respect him. And if you can't do any of those things, then respect the office that God's given. Respect God's uh, created order. Don't allow your pride to get in the way of speaking and acting respectfully toward your husband. Respectful submission also includes obedience to his leadership. When scripture uses the word obey, we shouldn't make the assumption that the wife is just another one of the children. Maybe that's Laura Engel's objection. It seems like she's just another one of the children. Uh, There's a kind of mutual respect that Scripture calls husbands and wives to have that elevates her station certainly above the children as his companion. If Abraham is Sarah's Lord, uh, then Sarah was his queen. The point about obedience is that the wife must follow her husband's God-given leadership. 
We're not talking about just tie-breaking authority here. The husband should be leading and guiding his home, and the wife should cheerfully submit to that. If she gives input to that, she's part of that process, but she should be following his, uh, her husband's leadership and trust that God has put him in authority over her. Godly submission is displayed in a respectful and pure conduct. Third, and lastly here, godly submission is cultivated by a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says. He instructs wives against prioritizing external beauty. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Okay, now is Peter saying that you know, Christian women should never wear jewelry, never braid their hair, never wear any kind of makeup? No, I don't think we, we need to read it that way. A lot of translations put merely in there to kind of help uh, with the context. If we read it that way, we'd have to say that, that Peter's forbidding Christian women from wearing clothing at all which, of course, is absurd. Uh, Peter has in mind a prioritizing of external beauty over the inner beauty that God values, that God sees, and that never fades. It's imperishable. We know from ancient artifacts and literature that Roman women, especially those of higher class and wealth, would wear these elaborate hairstyles, I mean, stacked up, you know, super tall, jewelry, expensive clothing, to show off their wealth and their status. And Peter's encouraging Christian wives not to get caught up or be preoccupied with external beauty that fades. The point is not that external beauty is unimportant. Uh, scripture speaks about the wives of the patriarchs as beautiful in form and appearance. We're told that Sarah, Rachel, Abigail, and others were beautiful in appearance. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, Solomon makes mention of his bride's outward beauty 14 times. Beauty is a uniquely feminine glory. There's a reason why little girls enjoy playing dress-up like princesses. It's also why women's magazines or advertisements tend to focus on fashion and makeup and home interior design. Um, who normally cares about decorating the home? Uh, who normally cares about the presentation of a meal or what kind of clothes the kids are wearing? Who normally spends more time getting dressed when going out? Hopefully it's your wives, men. A woman's desire to beautify herself and the environment around her is a God-designed impulse. God created that. God made women to be glorious and glorifiers. The woman in Genesis 2 is created from the man as the crowning moment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that the woman is the glory of the man. She glorifies the man by helping him fulfill his vocation and becoming his queen. This all means that women by design especially delight in making things glorious, adorning the home, adorning the table, adorning the children, adorning themselves. Peter knows this. Uh, this is a good and a right thing, but women are also tempted to turn these things into an occasion for pride. Women can be obsessed with their home looking a certain way to impress others. They can be tempted to look down on other women who don't do things as gloriously as they do. Peter says don't become so focused on prioritizing external beauty that you miss your true glory. Rather, put your effort and your priority on the hidden glory, the hidden beauty of the heart cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. 
The word Peter uses here for adorning is cosmos, where we get our word cosmetics. There's a, there's a kind of hidden cosmetic, Peter says, that results in the beauty that God sees, that is very valuable, very costly, very precious to him. The cosmetic is that of cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit, a meek and tranquil spirit. Not meek or quiet out of fear. Peter says children of Sarah are fearless. They do not fear anything that is frightening, for they hope in God. So what's Peter advocating here? Does Peter just want Christian women to be quiet and shy? Not quite. A Christian wife should have a gentleness and a peacefulness with respect to her husband's leadership. Okay, remember the context here is the wife's godly submission to her husband. As a child of Sarah, she places her hope and her trust in God. And this results in a restfulness that allows her to devote herself to good works. Children of Sarah are to do good and fear nothing, Peter says. In contrast to this, we see the Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs who's boisterous and loud. She's a contentious woman who undermines and resists her husband's leadership. Proverbs speaks again and again about the curse of a contentious wife. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife, says Proverbs 21. Proverbs 27 says, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. This is the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit. In contrast, the excellent wife of Proverbs 31, when she opens her mouth, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The same word for quietness in 1 Peter 3 is found in 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul says this, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to eat their own bread. The godly wife who cultivates a gentle and quiet spirit is busy doing good for her household, and she walks in meekness and in humility under her husband's leadership. Proverbs 31 also says that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A physical beauty, we all know, fades, contrary to what our culture tries to teach. It fades. But there's a kind of beauty that if cultivated, never fades. It is imperishable, Peter says. It's the kind of beauty that God considers most costly or precious. A glorious and a precious wife, an excellent wife, one who is far more precious than jewels, is a woman who fears the Lord and walks in obedience to him. This kind of beauty is what God sees and values. This kind of beauty is what Peter is advocating for winning an unbelieving husband. And a wise and godly husband will see this kind of beauty as God sees and will praise her just as the husband does in Proverbs 31, saying, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Peter shows that the submission of a wife to her husband is rooted in a fearless hope in God. It's displayed in respectful and pure conduct towards her husband, and it's cultivated by a gentle and quiet spirit. 
Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the mystery of marriage refers to the relationship of Christ and the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In Galatians 4, Paul says that Sarah is a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem above, our mother church. Peter says that Christian wives who hope in God and submit to their husbands are the children of Sarah. That is to say that Christian wives are a picture of mother church. Christian wives are to exemplify to the whole church what submission to Christ should look like. Do we respect and obey the word of Christ, our bridegroom? Are we following his lead in meekness and peace? Do we support him in his mission, fearing nothing and hoping in God? When wives speak the truth about the gospel through godly submission to their husbands, the church is renewed in her calling to follow her victorious bridegroom. May the church listen and rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.